You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right, well, good morning, Midtown. Good to see you guys this morning. Looking forward to our time of worship together. I see some new faces out there. If I've not met you, which I probably haven't if you're a new face, my name's Justin. Just wanted to introduce myself. I'm the associate pastor here. Would love to talk with you afterwards, so definitely come say hello. Um, I want to welcome back our college students that went to Fall Retreat. Was it awesome, guys? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Just got back, so just heard a little bit from Josh today while we were on the setup team together, but look forward to hearing more and trust that God really strengthened y'all's community. So welcome back for you guys. It's also a little bit of a welcome back for me. Uh, My wife and I just are having our 18th anniversary today, so... Happy anniversary to, to Brenda and I. If, if y'all have heard, I've mentioned in a few other sermons that uh, we do a fun thing every year where one person plans a trip and keeps it a secret from the other the whole time. And so I did not know where we were going until I heard the PA system as we're boarding the plane to Ireland. So we got a photo here of us here in Dublin. So spent five days in Dublin. And so if I'm jet lagged or sleepy or something like that, then that's my excuse for a really bad sermon. So, but I am sporting my green shirt. So you got that going for you. Um, If you're new here, we're not talking about her story today. Um, You never know what you're going to get at Lee. That's one of the fun things about this school is because they do do these productions, and so you never know on a Sunday when you get here. My favorite was a couple years ago on Easter was like Dinosaur Sunday. And so Jake's teaching the whole sermon with like a pterodactyl, like overhanging over his head that they had up there. And then uh, uh, this last Easter, one of my neighbors came for the first time, and she was at the very end, uh, Brenda was like, how did, you, how did you like the service? And she goes, I, you know, any questions? She said, well, I just have one. Like, what am I supposed to make of the backdrop? Was that meaning something? I forget what it was, but it had nothing to do with anything. So we're like, no, 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 no. This is a school. So welcome to Lee Elementary as well. Um, if you were with us last week, you know that we did start this new series in the book of James. And I have to be honest, when uh, this summer when we were kind of preparing and praying and thinking through what things we we're going to teach through uh, this year, and we decided on James, I got a little bit nervous. Because one of the things that happens when you actually study a book, sometimes God will actually give you chances to apply the book. And chapter one is all about trials and temptations. I'm not really a fan. I didn't want to go through trials or temptations. Um, But that's where we are today in in James, talking about this idea of trials and temptations. Um, And James, we're calling it the wisdom uh, for life because James is just super practical. He's giving us just tangible advice for how to walk as a body of believers. And he starts real honestly because he's writing to these churches that have been Jewish churches that have been scattered about. They're under deep persecution, much suffering. You're going to see that throughout this book as he uh, kind of talks about how poor they were and often uh, as well. So in a very rough situation, he starts off by trying to give them a biblical perspective about how they should approach the struggles, the trials, the tribulations that they're going through. And I like it because one thing is guaranteed, we're all going to go through trials, Right? We've all experienced them in the past, and it's guaranteed that these are going to happen in the future. So it's really practical for us to look at this, whether right now you're in the midst of something that you would say is really heavy and a trial in your life, or maybe you're, you're doing well, but you know that these trials are going to come. And I love that in the very first verse, it says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because he's like, he's, he's leaving it open to much type of trials, right? There's all kinds of trials that we can face. When I think about some of the categories, I think about the categories of financial trials, you know, times where you're struggling financially or maybe you've been unemployed or you've lost a job or you're in debt and there's just financial struggles when your, your car breaks down at the worst time or your house has a repair at the worst time. I think about, too, like health struggles, that there's, there's trials that happen just through our health, whether we get sick or whether we 
or in a period of, of disease or whether we have some mental uh, illness or, or some capacity like that. Those are health struggles, trials. Or you think, too, of um, trials related to relational sh- relationships. Like those might be some of the heaviest of trials, right? Conflict with a spouse, conflict with a friend, um, breakups, things like that that happen. And all those are the trials that we know that we're going to face. We've already faced them, and some of you are right now in the midst of one, and you'll be able to relate really well to what James is teaching. And so what James is trying to do in chapter 1 is to give us a real biblical perspective to help us like, look at trials from a biblical framework and have a theological grid by which when trials come, we can know then how to better handle them. So last week we looked at how we're supposed to consider them pure joy. And today what we're going to look at is a really important question, something that happens in the midst of trials, that in the midst of trials, one of the things that happens is you have temptation. We're going to talk about a particular type of temptation that happens when you're going through something hard. It starts by this one question that we probably all ask, particularly if we've been in the midst of a trial for a long time. The question that we often ask is, where is God? Where is God in this? Have you all ever been there? Like been through something that's going so hard that you ask the question like, where is God in this? Like it's a question that we're all prone to ask. Maybe phrased a different way. Is God testing me? Another way, why is he allowing this to happen? Why is he not delivering me from the situation? Why does it appear that the Satan and his forces are winning in this battle? Is God really in control? And ultimately, the question boils down to, when we're in the midst of something hard, we ask the question, is God good? And so, have you ever been there? You likely will if you haven't yet. And so, let's go to God with prayer and ask that James would instruct us in how to handle these temptations. God, uh, We've been through trials before, and some of us are in the midst of them right now. We'll face trials in the future for sure. And so we ask, Lord, that today you'd let us see how to see these trials from your perspective. And let all that's true uh, be understood and received today, and let every deception uh, really be exposed today. We need your illumination, so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be moving among us this morning, and you'd speak to each heart as you know each person here Uh, individually. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a note taker, there's really three broad points today. All right. We are partnering with God to see the day when every man, woman, and child hears the gospel from someone who loves them. (laughs) Thanks, Phil. So if you are a note taker today, number one is that God tests us, but he does not tempt us. This is what James is going to tell us, that God tests us, but he does not tempt us. We'll read a big chunk of the passage right here and then look at it together. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The first thing that James is trying to make really clear here is that God tests us, but he does not tempt us. And it's made a little bit tricky here. I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know Greek, so I'm not trying to uh, show anything here, but there, it's, it's tricky because this whole passage of James, the word used for test is the same word used for tempt. And so people who've studied the scripture and interpreted it for us and given us our Bibles today rightly changed the word in this case to tempt because you're going to see that even though they're the same word, 
there's certain things that God does and certain things that God does not do. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Particularly, we're going to talk about when it comes to testings and when it comes to temptations, there's a different source and a different purpose to each of them. And so the author or the uh, interpreters have interpreted this rightly to say, no, this is a different kind of thing that's brought on by someone else and has a different purpose in mind. And one of the things that you do when you're kind of trying to study with these different words is you just go back first to the context of the actual book itself, and then you let Scripture interpret Scripture by looking elsewhere in the Bible to see what it says about this idea of testing and tempting. And so let's do that little bit of that today. First is if you go back to this chapter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we read these last week, it says this, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing, that's that word there, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We're to let perseverance finish its works, so be mature and complete. And then to the verses we're reading today, starting in verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life. So what is the difference here? And the testing here is that God is sovereignly in control of testing that he allows to take place in our lives. And the source is God, that he is sovereign over all of it, but the purpose of it it's for these purposes that we see here. The purpose of the trials that God would allow to happen in our lives is to sharpen our faith, to strengthen our faith, to give us perseverance and make us mature and complete in Christ. Or as it says in verse 12, the purpose is that ultimately we would get a crown of life, that ultimately we're going to get a reward with God in heaven for our perseverance. That's the source in this case. So hold on to those. First, in the, in the case of testing, the source is God sovereignly in control of it. And then what's producing in us is mature faith and ultimately will be glory as we get to spend eternity with him. Now, you also see this elsewhere in Scripture, which is why we can know for certain that God does test us, but he does not tempt us. And we'll take, for instance, in, in Peter, in 1 Peter. Peter's actually writing very similar to James. He's writing these uh, Jewish churches that have been scattered all about through persecution. So he's writing these churches that are in the midst of suffering. And real similar to James, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1. And this you rejoice, he's talking about their salvation in the verses previous, so you're rejoicing in your, in your salvation, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, uh, vague again, right, many different kinds of trials, any sort of trials that you're facing, but these come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that we're in the midst of a trial, it's testing the genuineness of our faith, and listen to how our faith is described, it's more precious than gold which perishes though tested by fire. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back in a minute about how precious our faith is to God, how much it means to God when we hold on in faith to Him. It's happened that they, you know, that's precious. Though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, Peter's saying the same thing, that this testing of our faith that God's allowing to happen in these people's lives, it's testing them, maturing their faith, and ultimately, it's going to result in glory to God. When they stay faithful and they cling to God and they grow in their faith and they mature, it results in glory to God. Different source, God allowing something to happen as a source, it's producing glory to God. Or take in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, we know it is kind of the hall of faith. It's a chapter that talks just tons about the people who've gone before us, who've walked faithfully with God. We're actually going to go back to one of these verses here in a minute, but particularly when it talks about Abraham, it's talking about Abraham and how he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, even though he was the promised son. Now, we're not going to get into the whole story of that, but God asked him to do something very risky that made no sense. But in faith, Abraham was willing to do it before God intervened. And in Hebrews eleven seventeen, here's what it says of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
So God tested Abraham. God tests us. He's the source, but it produces spiritual life in us. And finally, we'll just go to one more, though. There's several other examples in Scripture. We'll go to the passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Maybe many of you are familiar with this passage, and it's recorded in most of the gospel accounts where, where Jesus feeds these 5,000. And when the crowds are coming upon him, he turns to one of his disciples and says, hey, let's, let's, let's do something. Let's feed these people. And listen to what John, only the gospel of John, records it this way. It says, Jesus said to Philip, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he was about to do. What he was asking the disciples to do is actually to start breaking people into groups and to gather in clusters, and they didn't know where the food was going to come from. And, he, and John gives us little insight that, that what Jesus was doing was he's testing him. He's wanting to see if they would, they would grow and have faith of all that they've experienced from Jesus. Would they have faith to do this next thing? And of course they did. They had faith and they gathered people, and Jesus multiplied the bread, and it resulted in glory to God. God allows testing for his own glory and for our good. So you might ask yourself then, why is our faith so important to God? And I think that's a super good question. We know going back to that Hebrews 11, that Hebrews 11, 6, one of the first verses in this long chapter about faith says this about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because whoever comes to God must first believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. There is something about our faith that I think that we can't fully grasp how much it means to God that we would trust him. It pleases his heart. It gives him so much joy that we would trust him even in the midst of something difficult that we're going through. I think we can't understand exactly how much it means. You see, God created us to be in relationship with him. He didn't create us because we, he needed us. He wanted to be in relationship with us. And so in his power, he could have made us where we had to worship him. We had to trust him, right? But that wouldn't be love. That wouldn't be trust because we've been made to do it. And what he did is he's given us free will where we can choose to trust him. And when we do, I don't think we'll ever know the extent to which that pleases the heart of God. One of my favorite books on this subject is this book called uh, Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey, an incredible uh, writer um, in, in and of itself. But he writes a lot about how much our faith means to God in this book. And it's one of my favorites. And he goes through kind of saying this idea of disappointment with God. He says there's kind of three questions that people ask when they're going through the midst of something very difficult in their lives. And there's three questions that we maybe ask inside, but we're afraid to vocalize. The three questions are, is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? Sounds pretty much like what I asked before, right? Like, where is God in this? Where is God in this struggle? And so one of the things I love about this book is it's kind of a modern-day parable as, a look of, uh, as it looks into the story of Job. So the book starts with, there's this guy named Richard, and Richard's at Wheaton College, so like a pretty well-renowned uh, Bible college, and uh, he wrote a paper on the book of Job. Now, if you're not familiar with Job in the Bible, Job is a pretty wild book where God allows this guy Job to be tested through some of the most severe pain and trials, ultimately to test his faith. And the book actually has all of his friends trying to answer the question of what is the source and what is the purpose, and they're all giving bad advice to him. And so it's a whole book giving Job a chance to express his faith, and there's this cosmic battle in the spiritual realm that's happening that this faith that Job displays ultimately brings glory to God. And so this is what this book is about. And so this guy Richard wrote just a great uh, article on it, a paper for it, and it's so good that the professor actually approached Philip Yancey and said, hey, Philip Yancey, famous author, says, hey, you should read this kid's book, like this article that he wrote. It's so good that I think it could be published. 
So he and Richard, uh, Yancey and Richard get together and they, they look over this book and Yancey reads it and he's like, yeah, this should be published. Let's do it. And so for months, they work on this project of publishing this book. And by the time it was done and their time together was done, in the publishing time, there was a several-month period. And when it finally came time to publish, Yancey was excited. He calls Richard and says, hey, guess what? It's coming to publish. And, and Richard says, don't, don't publish it. I don't believe any of that anymore. And he goes on to tell about all these trials that he'd been through, that actually he punted his faith, and he describes how he took all his Bibles and he burned them in a can. And this guy just left it. And so Yancey was just sidelined by this. He'd worked with this guy that was so solid, yet here he'd gone through these troubles, and he doesn't want this book to be printed. And so sent Yancey into a bit of a spin. And so what he decided to do was go get a mountain, go get a cabin in the mountains for two weeks and read the entire Bible from the perspective of where is God in the midst of our suffering. Among many things, he summarized his time in the mountains this way. I need my glasses for this. By the way, I thought I was going to need my glasses all day today because, uh, one, I cut my finger this morning when I was emptying the dishwasher. That was a blast. And then I printed my notes, and my, I was out of ink, so my notes are in pink, which is, <laughs> like, super light. Thankfully, I can try to read them. So, good morning to me. Here's what happened when Yancey went to the mountains. Here's how he described kind of the end of his time there. I came away from Colorado with a different mental image of God. After two weeks of studying the Bible, I had a strong sense that God doesn't care so much about being analyzed. Mainly, he wants to be loved. Nearly every page in his world wrestles with this message, and I return home knowing I must somehow explore the relationship between a passionate God, hungry for the love of his people, and the people themselves. All feelings of disappointment with God trace back to a breakdown in this relationship. Thus, I determined to look for an answer to the question I had never before considered. What does it feel like to be God? So we went back to reread the Bible with that in mind, like what does it look like or what does it feel like to be God? And as he did, he discovered several things. Like as he read the Bible from that perspective, one of the things that he realized was that God is very grieved when we turn away from him. He pointed out, you know, multiple scriptures through that, but you can really get a feel for this if you read the prophets, the minor prophets and the major prophets. You see God's heart when the people turn away. There's so many poetic and great things that God says about he's yearning for his people and he's so grieved that they've turned away and they've chosen not to trust him. Like it breaks God's heart. And he noticed that. The breaking of God's heart shows another thing about what it feels like to be God. In fact, he actually summarized it uh, this way. He said the response of the Israelites, he's actually talking about this passage like one of the things that happens um, that, that he also described was when we, when we uh, think that in the midst of a trial, like if only God would come through, like if only like he'd answer my prayers or he'd show himself in a miracle, then I would trust him. He kind of reads through the Bible and he says, you know, no, that actually didn't happen very often. The people, when God would show himself in a powerful way, they believe, but, but only for a moment. And then they fade back to not trusting him. And so this is maybe part of the reason, he says, why God might be hesitant to answer our prayers and to do great things for us because he knows it doesn't necessarily produce the faith that he ultimately wants us to have and a trust of him, which is why he describes uh, this way. Oops, lost my page. He says, the response to the Israelites to such direct intervention is, uh, offers an important insight into the inherent limits of all power. Power can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot control love. The 10 plagues of Exodus show the power of God over Pharaoh. And the 10 major rebellions recorded in Numbers show the importance of that power to bring about what God desires most, the love and faithfulness of his people. 
No pyrotechnic displays, no omnipotence could make them trust and follow him. We need not the ancient Israelites to teach us this fact. We can see it today in societies where power runs wild. In a concentration camp, as many witnesses have told us, the guards can possess nearly unlimited power. By applying force, they can make you renounce your God, curse your family, work without pay, eat human excrement, kill, and even bury your closest friends or even your mother. All this is within their power. Only one thing is not. They cannot force you to love them. The fact that God, the fact that love does not operate according to the rules of power may explain why God sometimes seems shy to use his power. He created us to love him in the most important, impressive displays of miracles. That kind we may secretly long for do not foster that love. As Douglas John Hall put it, God's problem is not that God is not able to do certain things. God's problem is that God loves. Love complicates life, and it complicates the life of God and every person. What God wanted most from his people is just faith. We can't really comprehend the degree to which God is pleased when we choose in the midst of a trial to continue to trust him. Our faith pleases God. The second thing that we'll look, if you're taking notes, is that we're going to look at the second part of this, is that God does not tempt us, but Satan does. So first, God tests us, but does not tempt us. Second, it's Satan that tempts us, not God. Here's another thing that James knew. This is why James is so practical. I love James because he knew that in the midst of a trial, he knew that there was a spiritual battle that was taking place in people's hearts. And so one of the things he's calling people to do is to recognize that when you're going through something hard, expect temptation, expect confusion, expect questions to rise, that we can either learn to trust God in those or we can learn to be deceived. Most times they come in a couple different ways, like in the midst of a trial, one of the ways that we're tempted is we're tempted to just take control, right? We all have different personality types, so this, this is more like my personality type. So when you're in the middle of something, you want to try to fix it. Instead of trusting God, you want to take things in your own hand, you want to make it happen. He knows that this is one of the things that's going to happen in the midst of a trial. You're going to want to take control and handle it yourself. But the second way that we go is we can, instead of trying to take control, one of the things that we can do in the midst of a trial is we can actually turn to our various vices, whether it's just binge-watching or your favorite food, your favorite drinks, or doing things to distract yourself and just turn your heart away in some way. And behind both of these, these are kind of the two major paths that we go in the midst of a trial. When the temptation comes, take control or just go live our lives by ourselves and do our own things and trust in our own comforts. Both of those at the root is an underlying question of, do we believe that God is good? Because ultimately, all temptation comes down to do we believe that God is good, which is why in James 1, 13, we'll pick back up here, he's really clear that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person's tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, and then desire is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full, growth, full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. You see the difference there between the two? We said before that with testing comes, it comes as a sovereign God that's over it. It's to produce life within us and faith. Here we've got something very different. This kind of temptation comes from an evil source. It comes from the evil one. And because we've all had a broken and sinful nature, it comes even now from inside us because of the sinful nature that resides inside of us. And its, pur its purpose is not to produce faith. Its purpose is not to produce life. Its purpose is to drag you away and to bring you to death. 
that's the type of difference we're talking about here in the two types of testings. That in the midst of a trial, you can expect temptation, but the temptation itself does not come from God. Because God's perfectly holy. God's perfectly without sin. So he cannot be the one who's tempting because he can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But instead, what happens because of the brokenness inside of us, it says here, we start with a desire. Maybe it's that desire, like I said, for control. Maybe it's that desire, like I said, to, to just blow off steam and distract yourself in ways that are unhelpful. But underneath all of it, there's a question about, do you trust God? James says that these desires will lead ultimately to our death. So he's acknowledging that there's a spiritual battle that's taking place during these temptations. He's letting his readers know that in the midst of the season of testing, they should be on guard for temptation. God has in mind good things uh, for you, even in the middle of a hard season, while the enemy aims to destroy you in the midst of this hard season. And James is trying to make them aware of this. If we're to go back to 1 Peter, I really like James and 1 Peter because they're both written to these persecuted churches. Peter actually gives a real similar advice at the end of his book. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this to his people who are suffering in the midst of trials. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up at due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour so what's his encouragement, his command to these people that are suffering in the midst of trial? It's like, let it humble you and get your anxiety and cast it on God and believe that he cares for you because you have to be sober-minded and alert because you're in the midst of a spiritual battle right now during this trial because in trials, temptation's gonna come and the enemy aims to destroy your faith. So stay humble. Believe that God cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him. That's trust. He goes on in the next verses to say this, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. He's reminding the church, like, you can resist. The enemy is prowling around. But you can resist by standing firm in your faith and continuing to believe that God is good. And two of the things that actually help you do that is remembering others who've walked through that and been faithful. And you can look to them and say, they persevered and God rewarded. And ultimately, you can be sure that God's going to deliver you from all of these trials and bring you to glory. Like those things are what help carry you in the midst of it and help you stay faithful. His purposes of making us strong and firm in our faith can come from what we're facing instead of the enemy tempting us and devouring us. It's good for us to remember those who've gone before us. One of the things that Yancey did, uh, it's kind of uh, littered throughout this book, is he actually did a ton of interviews with people who've suffered a lot because he wanted to hear people's stories and how they actually processed and, pers- and, and had their perspective changed about what they believed in the midst of the trials that they were going through. Um, and this is one that he called uh, the modern-day Job. And he says he had this interview with this guy. Uh, by the way, this guy started off in ministry. Um, and while he was in the ministry, his, his uh, wife got breast cancer. While he was trying to care for her, he had to lose his job. He later then got in a car wreck with, thankfully, his wife and his, his daughter were okay. But he had severe brain damage from it, which led to him not being able to read and not being able to work. Um, he says here, if anyone should be angry at God, it should be this guy, Douglas. But he was floored when he sat down for breakfast and talked to this guy about his experiences. Here's how the conversation went. 
Could you tell me about your own disappointment, I asked. What have you learned that might help someone else going through a difficult time? Douglas was silent for what seemed like a long time. He stroked his pepper-gray beard and gazed off beyond my right shoulder. I fleetingly wondered if he was having a mental gap. Finally, he said, to tell you the truth, Philip, I didn't feel any disappointment with God. I was startled by Douglas, seriously honest, and he, he, uh, he, he had always rejected easy formulas like turn your scars into stars or testimonials on religious television. I waited for him to explain. The reason is this. I learned that through my wife's illness and then especially through the accident, not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I'm upset at what has happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and anger, but I do not believe that God, feel, but I believe that God feels the same way about the accident, grieved and angry. I don't blame him for what happened. Douglas continued, I learned to see beyond the physical reality of this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by my experiencing constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God during my impairment than before. There was a deep irony in that scene. For months, I'd been absorbed by the failures of faith and had sought out stories of people disappointed with God. I'd chosen Douglas as my modern-day Job and expected to hear from a bitter, uh, hear a bitter blast of protests. But the last thing I anticipated was his graduate school course in faith. He said, if we develop a relationship with God apart from our life circumstances, then we'll be able to hang on when the physical reality breaks down. We can learn to trust God despite the unfairness of life. Isn't that really the main point of Job? Douglas asked. First Peter tells us that one of the things that we can do is we can actually look to others and their stories and see their faithfulness and that can inspire us to continue to stay faithful and to trust God in the midst of a hard time. Uh, a couple years ago, I was actually doing, um, really wrestling with some things and trying to figure out, kind of asking that big question, like where is God in the midst of awful things that are happening in the world? And I actually spent a whole summer uh, interviewing as many pastors as I, as I could. So I used to be in a campus ministry that uh, had a network of uh, dozens of churches in town. And so I would get with these lead pastors of all these churches and I had like a whole set of questions that I asked every single one just to try to get a better perspective and answer some of my questions about how do you trust God in the midst of so much suffering that's in the world? And probably my favorite interview was this guy, Keith Atkinson. Uh, Keith Atkinson's at Red River Church. He's the pastor there. Some of y'all have met there. We've done certain events at their church building. But Keith is a, a wonderful man. And when I, uh, I met him years before, but when I started getting close with him, uh, we went out to lunch together, and I was introduced for the first time to his wife. And his wife, to be really honest, looked like a homeless person um, because she had actually, I didn't know this at the time when we very first met, but they went on to explain it to me that day that she had this really rare form of cancer that, that did crazy things to her skin. And she did not look like the woman that Keith married. And she struggled with this cancer for years and years and, and ultimately died. I kind of walked with Keith through all this, and when I sat down with him that summer to kind of ask some questions, he was the favorite person that I talked to because he just spoke so much about how he trusted God and he believed and he was faithful to God and never questioned God's goodness throughout it. He told a lot of crazy stories of friends like Job that told him all kinds of things that weren't true, but how he persevered through even those things to believe that God was still good, that he was in control. Keith's happily uh, remarried, has had a baby. He had babies before with his other wife, but now he's got a baby with his new wife, and it's just been fun to see this guy stay faithful. And I look at someone like that, and I say, 
that inspires me to stay faithful and believe that God is good even amidst hard times. Our third and final point uh, today is that the ultimate temptation is to question God's goodness. In the midst of a trial, the ultimate temptation is Satan's attempt to deceive you to believing that God is not good, which is why James starts with that very, very strong statement in verse 16. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. He's telling, don't be deceived by the enemy. God is good. God is the one who brings all these good gifts, and he's the ultimate provider and ultimately the best gift that he's made us into his family. That's what he says there in that last verse. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that he's brought us into, our fa- into his family. And the chief tactic in the midst of a trial is going to be the enemy's desire to deceive you to believe that God is not good. James knows that. And so he's saying from the very start, like, don't be deceived. This is the really cheap tactic of the enemy overall. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, we know the very first temptation reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals that the Lord made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like those, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He starts with the question, did God really say that? And Eve actually wisely answers. She, she deflects off the one she's not supposed to eat. She says, no, God's given us all this stuff. I'm thinking about all the good gifts that God has given us. But he comes back again. And ultimately, the root of the temptation is, is God good? He's withholding something from you. He's not good. And so has been the temptation from the first day to the last till today. It's ultimately a test of our faith, to believe that God's good, even when life is not. You see, trials do two things with with us. They result in greater intimacy with God, like the work that God wants to do through a trial, or they can lead to an abandonment of faith. I know uh, many of you could give testimonies, like right now you could say, I can remember a time when I went through this, and here's what God produced in me. It produced so much life in my intimacy with God, and now I'm better able to minister to others, and I've seen the fruit of it. We could also likely point to some of our friends who tragically, in the midst of the trial, abandon their faith. What brings us most hope is that many of us actually have lived both of those. <laughs> There's been a time where we've walked away and we fall prey to the lie and the deception that God is not good, but ultimately, by God's grace, He shows us our, His goodness again, and we're able to run right back to Him and be in relationship with Him. We've all experienced it, and we're going to experience this battle. The spiritual battle is real, so don't hear me saying that this is easy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a very real spiritual battle for deception of our hearts to believe that God is good or that he's not. The battle, uh, in a battle like this, you need a lot of tools. You need some things that you can do to try to remind yourself that God is good and to, to stroke your heart and to, and to sway your heart to believe. And so I want to give you just in closing five ideas of things that you can do to help when you're in the midst of a trial and a temptation. If you do some of these things, I think they protect your heart from the deception that God is not good and will instead give you the faith to believe and keep clinging to God and trusting Him. Five things, I'll mention them real briefly. First is to give thanks. 
It's so helpful to focus on the good gifts. It says right there in the passage, right? All these good gifts that God has given you, they come down from the Father who doesn't change. He doesn't change in his love for you. He doesn't change. He gives good gifts. And so to pause and reflect and think about the good things that God has given you is a great way to keep your eyes and your heart believing that God is good. That's why the Psalms are so good to read because you read the Psalms and so many of them, the psalmist is writing and at first it's about the awful situations that are happening in their life and you'll see them slowly transition to starting to give thanks and the psalm ends with them saying, I trust you, God. Like that's what we need to do. That's what gratitude does for us. Second thing I'd suggest would be calling on others. You're not meant to go through trials alone. If you don't call on others, you're not gonna make it. You need the strength of others' belief to help point you in the right direction. You don't need Job's friends. <laughs> you, need, you need better friends that can point you to the truth that God is in control, that God loves you, that he's working something good in your life right now. When Paul wrote the letter to the Second Corinthian church, uh, I love chapter one of Second Corinthians because he says, in so many words, he says this, that when you're, going through com- when you're going through suffering, ultimately God's going to comfort you, but he comforts you so that then you can actually give that comfort back to someone else who's suffering. That's actually one of the great things that happens when we go through a season like this. We're better equipped to now help other people, which is why we need each other. Side plug to say, if you're not in a midtown community, man, you're really missing out. Like you might be going through something hard right now and no one knows it. Like that's what our midtown communities do is they provide the circle of friendships to help each other believe and continue to believe that God is good. Plug into a midtown community. Third thing I'd suggest is, is uh, to memorize scripture. One of the things like, I can't express uh, how important it is for, for you to have truth that you can hold on to in the midst of a season. Y'all have heard me say before that there's a psalm for every season. I really believe that. I can look back at my life and go, oh, yeah, that was a Psalm 73 year. I remember that. And, oh, yeah, that was Psalm 16, that six-month period. Yep, that was my psalm. Here's my Psalm 116 season. It doesn't have to be a psalm, whatever scripture it is. You see Jesus doing this. This is the way that he resisted temptation. And, and you read the passage where he, just before he started his ministry, he went to fast for 40 days and it said he was tempted by the devil. And each time he was tempted, he quoted back a verse from Deuteronomy. Like, how many of you can spell Deuteronomy? Like, like <laughs> Jesus is quoting it. He's fighting back because he's got scripture in his heart. This, by the way, is the, uh, one of the healthy habits that I'm gonna do this year. I recognize it's something that I need to be stronger at. And so, you know, we're in the season of, of encouraging everyone to develop two healthy habits that, that help bring you more intimately uh, connected with God. For me, I'm gonna do the memory. Fourth one I'd mention is worship. Another thing you may have heard me say once or twice is that sometimes we have to sing our way into belief. Y'all believe that? Like sometimes you can't just rationalize it. You can't in your head conceptually decide, you know, to have faith in God. And what you need is a song, something that in your singing, in your meditating, it moves from your head to your heart. And I love that we're going to have a chance to do this here at the end of worship. And I would encourage you to engage with all of your heart in this worship. As we sing over each other, we're helping each other believe what's true about God, that he's good. And fifth, and most importantly, as we need to remember Jesus' suffering. This is the most important thing that we can do, I believe. Uh, here's why. <laughs> In a season of suffering, we often feel the need to know the reason why we're suffering, right? Or we ask that question, where is God? And, and I would argue, and this is really one of the main points that uh, Yancey argues in this book, is first, if you had the answers to those, to those questions, they, you wouldn't understand them. <laughs> so good luck. It's not going to help. Second, if you could understand him, he argues that it, it, it really wouldn't meet what your heart really wants. You don't want an answer to a question of why something's happening. What you want is you want a God to be present with you in it. 
And you want a God who's suffering with you in it. That's why the most important thing we can do is you're in this period of trial and you're just temptation that's going to come, that's going to tempt you to believe that God's not good. The most important thing you can do is to go back to Jesus and consider his suffering. I really love the, the book of Hebrews because more than any other book in the Bible, I believe, it talks more about the humanity of Jesus. And you see Jesus as being one who suffered with us. In Hebrews chapter 2, let's just look at this uh, last couple of verses together as we close. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, And putting everything under him, uh, God left nothing that's not subject to them. Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Real quick, what this is talking about is talking about comparing Jesus to the spiritual realm and all the angels and demons, and it says that, that Jesus has them all under his feet, that he's crowned, he's king, he's over all of it. And maybe the most true statement in the Bible is this verse 9, but now, or, or verse 8, yet at the present time, we don't see everything subject to him. <laughs> Very true. We don't see that right now. So we don't see everything subjected to him right now, but what we do see is we see God who has entered our suffering with us and died in our place and took on all the suffering of the world. And that's what we want more than answers, to know there's a God that has suffered and would suffer for us. He continues in Hebrews chapter 2, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, through whom everything exists, should, be made, uh, should make the pioneer of their, faith, of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's talking about Jesus, that, that God made Jesus perfect through his suffering. He did the same thing that we did, the same thing that outcome of suffering and trials produced in him, that same faith. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Like Jesus entered your humanity. This is the miracle of the incarnation that God would become man and enter our suffering world and experience all of it, even to death. Continuing to verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of sin. And him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have been held in slavery to the fear of death. For surely it's not to the angels, it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Are you not blown away by the beauty of that? Like this is the, the God that loves you. He was willing to suffer for you. And he did it ultimately to destroy this enemy that's attacking you and causing you to unbelief. He's going to destroy the power of death and destroy the enemy. Not only that, because he entered our world and suffered just like we have, he's able to help us when we're being tempted. And he's full of mercy when we're being tempted because he has been tempted just like we were. That's the beauty of this. And if you're ever to question, again, God's goodness, one of the best things you can do, of course, is to look back to Jesus because if Jesus suffered for you in the way that he did, you can't question God's goodness because he died for you. I'm not saying we're not going to have the battle. I told you that already. Like, we are going to continue to have this battle. But what we need to do ultimately, all those things I mentioned, there could be many more, but ultimately look back to Jesus and see a God who is willing to enter it with us and be confident that he suffers when we're suffering. 
that he feels what we feel, and that he's present with us. And best of all, he's ultimately going to end all suffering for those who put their faith in him. At the end of the book, uh, Yancey describes and uses the same passage. Um, I think he does better with his words than I do with mine, so I'll read his last comments on Hebrews chapter 2 before we worship together. It says, chapter 2 begins with a lofty quotation from the Psalms about God putting everything under Jesus' feet, then follows a single pregnant sentence, yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to him. As an author, I know what it's like to write what I believe to be true and then wonder, as soon as I've written it, do I really mean that? The author of Hebrews, after recording this Gus Grand theology of the Psalms, likewise seems to pause and reconsider. Yes, it's true that Jesus is in control, but it sure doesn't look like it. At the present, we don't see everything subjected to him. This one sentence encompasses all the unfairness, all the war, all the violence, all the hatred, all the lust, all the triumph, all the, all the, all the triumph of evil over good, all the illness, all the death, all the tears, all the groans, and all the pain. It may be the truest sentence in all of the Bible. This, par- this paragraph continues, but we see Jesus who suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Pointedly, Hebrews does not sum, uh, summon up a triumphant image of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration or in his resurrected body, but it shows Jesus on the cross. The author goes on to use some of the most mysterious language in the New Testament. He calls Christ being made perfect and learning obedience through the things that he suffered. Commentators often skirt around these phrases for they're not easy to reconcile with the traditional notions of an unchanging, passionless God. But I must not skirt them for they are presented in Hebrews as Jesus' direct contribution to the continuing problem of pain. In Hebrews, it seems clear that the incarnation meaning God as well as for us. It was the ultimate way for him to identify with us. He, a spirit, had never been confined in a worldly manner. Matter. He never experienced the soft vulnerability of human flesh and had never sensed the clamorous warnings and pain cells. Jesus changed all that. He went through the entire human experience from the blood and pain of birth to the blood and pain of death. From the Old Testament, we get a lot of insight into what it, feels, what, it, what it feels like to be God. But the New Testament records what happened when God learned what it feels like to be human. Whatever we feel God felt instinctively, we want a God who not only knows our pain but shares in it. We want a God who's affected by our pain. This is the Jesus that we worship. We can trust that he's good because he was willing to die for us and experience all the pain that we're going to be experiencing someday in the trials that go before us really want us to worship together and declare God's goodness. As you take communion, I want you to remember that Jesus experienced all the pain that you have experienced. He's experienced the pain that you're going to experience. He invited his disciples to do this in remembrance of him, to remember that he died for you and he loves you. We have communion in the front and the back. Anyone who's put their faith in Jesus is welcome to participate. I mentioned too that we have Cameron and Matt uh, that are in the back. They've got little prayer uh, prayer. Uh, prayer people, <laughs> volunteer uh, lanyards on, they would love to pray for you, particularly if you're going through something hard right now and you just need someone to intercede for you, they would love to pray for you during this time. Let me pray and let's, bring, let's really enjoy worshiping our very good God. God, we ask that you would uh, strengthen our faith, prepare us for these times of troubles and let us not be deceived by the enemy, but trust you fully because you are good. As we sing about it now, Lord, let the truths be made evident in our heart as we take communion. Let us do it gratefully knowing that you have suffered all the things that we have suffered. We thank you for being with us and in our suffering. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.